Now, if you have your Bible open this morning to Isaiah chapter 9, we end our four-week series looking through passages in the Old Testament that anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. And perhaps one of the most famous and well-known is our text before us today in Isaiah chapter 9. But sometimes a passage that might be so familiar can often cause us to overlook its importance. And so today, we're going to look at it in particular, the titles given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, what it means for his coming, what it means for us today. Let's read the text, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. I'll read and we'll pray together and invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's a good text, right? <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to cause what is true to become real to our hearts. Thank you that you care about every person in this room and those joining us online. And we invite you to speak into all the cares and concerns and worries and anxieties and fears. Speak into our hearts the truth, the hope, the joy, the peace that is found in Jesus Christ. We pray that the result would be our lives transformed as we hear your word. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, Christmas is the one Christian event of the year that everyone wants in on, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their religion, regardless of what they don't believe, right? So it's the one that everyone wants, uh, you know, to get in on the action of, even atheists. There's one particular author that I read often. He is a well-known atheist and author, Elaine de Baton, and he describes Christmas like this. In my mid-twenties, I underwent a crisis of faithlessness. It began with a re-evaluation of Christmas and gradually spread to religion as a whole. It should be possible to remain a committed atheist and nevertheless find occasions such as Christmas useful, interesting, and consoling. Right? There's just something about Christmas. It doesn't matter what you believe, but Christmas comes and you're like, oh... There's just something about it. Everyone wants like to get in on it. They want to talk about joy and they want to talk about peace and they want to talk about contentment. But this passage before us today and many others like it tell us that this is actually not possible for those who do not believe. 
If the events described in the Bible are not real, or if you do not actually trust in them, then there is no takeaway story. There's no practical lesson. There's no like abiding principle like, hey, if there's no room in the inn, go sleep with the animals. You're like, oh, that's a good practical application. Like there's no application there. Or to put it simply, we cannot have the peace of Christmas without the person of Christmas. Without the person that Christmas is all about. And in Isaiah chapter 9, a passage quoted often at Christmas, we find a description of who this person is and why only he can solve the greatest problem and fulfill the deepest longing of us all. And surprisingly, we're told that he comes as a child, as a gift given to lead and to save. Now, if that is true, what does it say about us, about what we need, and about who Jesus is? We bear in mind that these words were originally spoken hundreds of years before Christ was born. These words were spoken by the prophet Isaiah in a time of great darkness for the nation of Israel. Israel had rebelled against God, and as, as a result, they were under the shadow of the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian army, who had the power to overtake them and to rule over them. And it's in this period of darkness where all the people of Israel were saying, who's going to save us? What about all of God's promises? What do they mean for us? If we're just looking around at our circumstances, it appears that we are doomed. They didn't know what to do. They did not know who would lead them. And in many ways, friends, this is our story today. We look around and see that it's just a time of chaos and uncertainty and unmet expectations and confusion. And many of us talk about it, think about it on a daily basis. And we're asking the question like, where can we find leadership? Where can we find clarity? Where can we find light in the midst of this darkness? Well, it was in that context then and even into our context today that we take note of these four titles in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, four titles given to this child that belong to God alone. And they describe who he is and what he has come to do. And when we pay attention to them, we realize very quickly that there is nothing else in the history of the world like this. No one else in any other religion like this. A child is born. A son is given. A remarkable prophecy showing us that Jesus Christ would be both fully human and fully God. A child would be born, but a son would be given. A son who already existed. But then it goes on to lay out, essentially, the job description of Jesus. What will his leadership be? And what will it be like for us to come under his leadership? That's an important question. Because when we think about leadership, for many of us, our hearts may just sink. A recent survey by the World Economic Forum found that 
86% of respondents believe that we are suffering a global leadership crisis, which runs all the way from local to national, even to international concerns. And in this crisis, few effective leaders are to be seen. But of course, friends, you don't need statistics to prove that to you. We've seen it firsthand. You might look around at, at leaders in this country or in other countries or across the globe. You may look even amongst your own community, your friends, your, your family. Many of us have experienced leadership which is either absent, people who should be leading but they're not, or it's awful, people that are leading and maybe they shouldn't. We even see it at times throughout the history of the church. But Christmas is about Jesus coming to be our true leader. But why should I come under his leadership? What does this passage tell me about him that would invite me to come and ask him to lead my life? Well, the answer is found in these four beautiful titles. And the first is this. Who is he? Jesus has come to be our counselor. What is a counselor? A counselor is someone that you go to in order to help you make sense of your life, in order to kind of put all the pieces together, to know which direction to go, which path to take, which choices to make. And I think we could all agree like, man, that'd be great at the end of 2021. Like, I could use a counselor. But here's the good news. Well, there's much good news here. One of them is that he doesn't cost $265 an hour. So that's amazing. He's a counselor. But what makes a counselor good? Well, at the very least, there's two things that make a counselor good. One, they know which path to take. And two, they know what it's like to take that path. See, there's many people that... that you know, they have advice. They say, oh, here's what you should do. Here's the choice you should make. But I have no idea what it's like because I've never done it. I've gotten a lot of advice like that. Hey, Tim, I'll tell you what you should do right now. And I'm like, oh, well, do you think it's going to be hard? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> I've never done it. You're like, okay, that advice might be true, but you're not really encouraging me here because you don't know what it's actually like. But how wonderful it is. And maybe some of you have experienced this firsthand from a family member or a friend. Someone who's so encouraging, so helpful, so life-giving when they're speaking to you and they not only steer you down the right path, but they've also shared the experience of walking it. They say, hey, here's the choice you should make. And let me tell you, here's what it's going to be like. I know because I've done it. At Christmas time, we remember not only that Jesus came, but why he came. He came to be our counselor. He came to be our counselor. He's not only telling us which direction to go, he also knows what it is like to live in this world. It's very easy at Christmas, I don't know if you find this in your own heart, it's very easy to sentimentalize Christmas, like, oh, baby Jesus in the hay. <laughs> and we have all our, like, you know, our neon or illuminated nativity scenes, which, yes, are beautiful, and there's something awesome about that. But friends, Christmas is dark. 
At the time, there's a lot of danger and darkness in the world, and Jesus comes, and when he does, he comes into poverty. He comes into a context of suffering. He comes into an obscure family. He comes into the mundane and everyday ordinariness of life, the difficulty of family relationships. Even Jesus' siblings later on thought he was crazy. Jesus not only knows what path to take, he says, I know what it's like to take it. Because Jesus is not only fully God, he became a man. And if this is true, if this happened, then Christianity is not only profoundly unique, it is absolutely revolutionary. It means this morning, friends, when you talk to God and you tell him about your struggles and you tell him about your difficulties, he can say to you, I understand. We see this through the life of, of Jesus. He was faced with all manner of temptation, though without sin. He endured hostility. He endured suffering. He knew what it was like to be in a context of weakness. He understands completely. It's not just some kind of cold diagnosis. He knows. And that's what makes him such a wonderful counselor. That term wonderful simply means unparalleled. There is no one like Jesus to counsel us. And that is important because the problem of humanity is essentially this. We've all listened to bad counsel. We've all listened to unwise counsel wrong counsel. That story goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, they turned away from God and they listened to the bad counsel of the enemy. And humanity has repeated the mistake over and over again. We listen to any counsel that exalts itself over God and puts man in his place. But Jesus comes and he counsels us to turn back to him. And to receive life. He is a true counselor. And he is a wonderful counselor. In every challenge. In every situation. He knows what must be done. And maybe you're in a situation as we're approaching the, the end of the year. Maybe it's a situation with your family or, or your work or your living situation. And you might come to church this morning and you're like, man, I don't feel like I have joy. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what decision to make about this particular situation. Well, friend, if that's you, my question is this. Have you talked to Jesus? It's amazing how quickly I go to anyone and everyone else, including Google, before I often pray to God about my issues. <laughs> Like, oh, I need advice here. Hey, so-and-so, I'll get this person on the phone. Like, you know, try to search something. This happened to me recently. And they're like, Tim, you prayed, right? And I was like, sure. I'm a pastor, of course. Oh, yeah, I guess I didn't really pray about that. <laughs> Have you talked to Jesus? He's your wonderful counselor. He knows the plans that he has for you. And he can guide you. You might say, well, that's nice. He might have a plan, but can he pull it off? Well, great concern. That leads to our second point. He's not only our counselor, but secondly, he is our God. 
He is our God. And the title given to him here is striking. He is our mighty God. I mean, think about what this means. It means at least two things. First, it means that when we talk about Jesus, we can't just talk about Jesus and say he inspires us or merely that he teaches us. Because the whole scene around the the manger that we often have pictured in our mind at Christmas is not a scene of inspiration. It is a scene of worship. I mean, look at these titles. I often learn by contrast. So imagine if Isaiah 9 was written like this. A child will be born, a son will be given, and his name will be called Great Guy. His name will be called Solid Teacher. His name will be called Self-Help Guru, Inspirational Speaker, Creative Entrepreneur, Social Activist. That would be a bummer, right? You'd read that and you'd be like, really? But that's not what it says. That's not why the, the angels came and reported to the shepherds like, hey, shepherds out in the field, go. There's this child that's been born and he's pretty good. <laughs> The shepherds are like, I'm in the market for looking for someone who's decent. Like, he's decent. (laughs) Behold, in Bethlehem, this day is born someone who's kind of cool. (laughs) It's not what it says. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Which means, friends, he is not only worthy of our attention, he is worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our worship. Which means we surrender. It means if he's mighty God, it means I am not. It means you are not. He's God. He's also mighty. And that's another truth that stands out from this this title. Because it's one thing to have a great plan, but it's another thing to have the ability to execute the plan. I know a lot of people with great plans. Like, Tim, here's what you should do. And they lay it all out. I'm like, oh, cool. Can you help me? They're like, no, I can't. Or they give me a plan, and I'm like, that's a good plan. And I look at myself, and I'm like, can I do this? Probably not. And some might be tempted to think of Jesus as, oh, yes, he's very wise. But can he do it? Oh, yes, he can. He is mighty God. And he needs the power because notice verse 6. You notice the phrase, the government shall be on his shoulder. I know many people who have some good plans. They're not able to do it. We look at our world. We look at human government, the the attempt that we make to to govern and order our lives. We can look around and say, wow, it's broken just like we're broken. I was reminded this week that uh, Dallas Willard, who was a famous Christian author, he was once asked, What do you think about, you know, as a Christian, what do you think about different political theories, different forms of government? And he said basically like this. He's like, honestly, any human form of government, any political theory could work if everyone obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. And the interviewer's like, oh. (laughs) He's like, yeah, you could say this one's a little bit better and a little bit better or a little bit worse than that one. But really, any of them can work if everyone obeyed the Ten Commandments all the time perfectly. You're like, well, that's probably not going to (laughs) work. We look at how people lead, how people rule. 
We're often disappointed. We're often hurt. We look in the ways in which we have tried to govern our own lives. And if we're honest, we say, we can't shoulder that. But here's the good news in verse 6. The government, the, the ruling of people shall be on my shoulders. Doesn't say that. Your shoulders doesn't say that either. See, one of the reasons there's so much disappointment on a broader level with what's happening in our cultural climate today, but even on a more local and relational level, is because we've not just entrusted other leaders with, the res- with general responsibility. It's almost as if we're entrusting them with our salvation. You can lead us. These people can take us there. This person can give me what I truly need. But when we do that, we're putting all of our hope in the wrong place. We place the burden of ultimately governing our lives and we put it on the shoulders of other people. In what ways are we doing that this morning? Like, man, I'm putting all the weight on this person. I'm putting all the weight of governing my life and my world on these people. Whether it's a person in my family, a person I voted for, whatever it might be. But at Christmas... And notice, this is a a very political statement here in Isaiah 9. We remember that the one who is to rightly rule and reign is mighty God. He is the one that we worship. And so today, we are reminded, we are called to take the burden of governing our own life and place it on Christ's shoulders and learn to rest your hope on him. In what way do I need to do that this morning? In what way do do you need to do that this morning? Like, God, I've been trying to govern it all, or I've been hoping that these people can govern it all, but right now, I'm going to take that that burden of governing my life and the world, and I'm going to put it back on your shoulders, because they're the only shoulders that can bear it. He's our wonderful counselor. He's our mighty God. And you say, okay. I get it. He knows. He's omniscient. Yes, he's mighty God. His leadership will be great, but will it be good? I'm so glad you asked the question because that's the third title. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. That's an interesting phrase. What does it mean? Now, the statement from the prophet Isaiah is not meant to confuse us about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is this. We believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 9 is about the child who would be born, the son who would be given, Jesus. So how are we to understand then this title of everlasting father? Well, it makes sense when you read the way in which the Old Testament uses that phrase. It is a description of a ruler showing care. Oftentimes, the the rulers, the kings of Israel, it was expected of the Jewish people that their ruler would show paternal love for the people that they ruled over. It's often said he will be like a father to the people. This would keep a a ruler from just being a cold despot, but rather someone who has the best interests of the people that they were responsible for 
at heart. This is the role that a good ruler should have. A deep, loving involvement for and concern with my life. Friends, that's who Jesus is to you. He is your everlasting carer, if you will. And this is a beautiful truth because it means that Christ not only cares about your deepest and truest needs, he cares completely, everlasting, endless, never-ending care. That's what this title describes. In fact, it's not too much to say that Jesus cares about your truest needs more than you do. And oftentimes, we're not even aware of them. Oftentimes, we settle for far too little instead of asking for too much. We're like, God, just get me through the winter. And he's like, I want to transform your life. Like, oh, I guess you could do that too. God, I'm struggling with my finances. God's like, I'm going to change you from the inside out. And you're like, sure, that's kind of a bonus. But if just kind of need to pay a bill right now. (laughs) But when we see the depth of his love and his care, He sees what we need far beyond even what we are often aware of. And his care can never be exhausted. I don't know about you, but this is such an encouraging truth for me. Because if you're like me, you often feel that every time you pray and every time you ask God for help, you feel as if you're like slowly draining his resources. There's nothing in the Bible that would communicate that, but that's often how I feel. At the end of 2021, the amount of times I've gone to God and asked for stuff, asked for forgiveness, I feel as if, this is not a biblical truth, I feel as if the next time I'm asking God, he's like, well, well, well. And the angels are, look who showed up to the throne of grace again. And God's like, hey, Tim, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm down to like 10% of my, my care for you, you know, and we still got two weeks left of like 2021. So, you know, and I know you're coming back. So just make it short. I'm like, all right, Lord Jesus. But nothing could be farther from the truth. Friend, if you feel as if you coming to God and asking him again for forgiveness, for provision, if you feel if in any way that you have or even possibly could exhaust his resource of compassion and care in the most loving way possible, I'm going to tell you, you are absolutely wrong. Because God's care and compassion for you is endless. Now tie that in with the previous three titles. He's our counselor, so he has a plan. He's our mighty God, so he has the power to do it. But the fact that he's everlasting father in this way, this title shows me that he will always have my best interests at heart. And that's really what it comes down to. When I struggle to trust God in difficult seasons, or even the good seasons, It's because I often believe this little lie, little but very destructive lie, that God might not have my best interests at heart. And that's why when I make my plans, I often try to make my plans in place of God. And then, you know, at the end of a year or a new season, I'm like, hey, God, just coming to you in prayer. I made my own plans for 2022. I I put them in a PDF. And so I'm just giving it to you. There you go. If you could just use your power to do what I've asked you to do according to my plan, that'd be great. Why do I do that? Because there are seasons and moments where I don't always believe 
that he has my best interests at heart. And friend, if that's you, you need to know that that is also a lie. It's understandable in this world because we've been burned by many people. Maybe others have taken advantage or they've made decisions without your best interests at heart. But we can look at God. We can look to who he is and what he's done and what he's been faithful to do throughout all of history and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he has my best interests at heart. And one of the biggest cases for that is the story of Christmas where he doesn't just leave us to our own devices, leave us to our own mess and misery. No, at Christmas time, we celebrate a God who though he was under no obligation to do so, he came for us. He came to us. He even came in the most lowly of circumstances. And if that was true then, I can know that it's true today. I look at the manger and I think, if God was present even in the worst and lowliest of circumstances, then I know that God will be with me. And his care for me, his care for you will never end. He will help you endlessly. That's what's meant by everlasting Father. It's not only a description of his eternal nature, it's a phrase that describes his care. His care will be endless. Friend, he loves you endlessly. But what's the result? What, what happens if I come under his care? Well, that's answered in the fourth title. He's our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And fourth, he is our peace. Or specifically, our prince of peace. He is a perfect ruler. And those who rely upon and come under his rule will experience peace. It's an interesting title. If you've been a Christian for a while, it'll be very familiar to you. You might even sing songs about how he's our prince of peace. But let's pause for a moment and think about how radical that is. How does a prince bring peace? Well, the short answer is this. A prince to a nation who's in the middle of a dark circumstance where for Israel, the Assyrian army has the power to completely overrule them and they wonder where God is. And you hear this phrase, prince of peace. What does that mean? A prince brings peace by fighting a battle on your behalf. That's how a prince or a ruler brings peace. They fight a battle on your behalf. If you live in the ancient world, and perhaps imagine yourself in ancient Israel, and maybe you live on kind of the, the, the outskirts of town, a village, chances are you would not be directly involved in a particular battle. And it might even be a while before you hear about the results of a battle. But what I love about this picture is that when a ruler would go out to fight on behalf of the people and they won a great victory against your enemy, they would, send, they would then send a messenger back to all the towns and villages. And they'd have their scroll and they'd read it and they'd say, we have good news for you. That's where we get our word gospel. 
A battle has been fought and won on your behalf and you now get to enter into the victory. And you're there with your staff and like whatever, or your water jug and whatever you might be holding in the ancient world. You're like, cool. So what do I do? They're like, nothing. A battle has been fought and won on your behalf. And in an age in which all of our news is so immediate, I, I think we often lose the beauty of this. Like, it's a good report of a battle that has been fought and won, and you can now enter into that victory. That's how a prince brings peace. What does that mean for us and for our world? Well, the reason we are unsettled, the reason why your family members that you're going to see this Christmas are unsettled. The reason why we see this unsettledness in our culture and in our world, the reason that there is conflict is primarily because our sin has separated us from God. And therefore what we need is peace with God. And that can then enable us to have peace with each other. That might be a very obvious Christian truth. But friend, my encouragement to you is this. As we come to the end of the year, and we will see acquaintances, we will see friends, we will see family, chances are we'll talk about a lot of different things. And people will talk about what's going on in the world, what's going on in our, our country, what's going on in our local region or whatever it might be. And everyone's going to have a take. Everyone's going to have an opinion. It's going to come from all different sides. And it's fine to talk about those things, but please never confuse the problems that we see on the surface with the most fundamental problem of sin. And thus, the Christian church is distinct that in any conversation, the Christian can always bring it back to, but, but hey, let me tell you, the real reason why there's so much chaos in the world is because of sin. It's our privilege and our responsibility to remind the world that if we're going to have any kind of true and lasting peace, it's not going to come as a result of what we can do. It comes as a result of what God can do, as a result of what God did. How will this prince bring peace? By force? By coercion? No. This prince would bring peace without force, without coercion. He would fight the battle. When Jesus would come into our world, he would fight the battle against sin and evil without ending us. How could he do that? By offering his life as a sacrifice for our sin, though he himself never sinned. That's the message that Isaiah is preaching. That's what he's looking forward to. Now, you might say, well, how could they be sure? How could Israel at this time be sure that God would do this? And how can we today be sure that Jesus will finish the work that he started? Because I look around now and it doesn't feel that much different from the time of Isaiah. It all looks pretty dark. And maybe some of us have our own expectations that we don't feel are, are met. Or maybe we don't think that God has come through in the way that we wanted him to. Or we interpreted him as maybe he would do. How can we be sure he's going to do this? 
Well, that is why, friends, I love, and I would love for you to underline and highlight verse 7. Because at the end of this whole passage about this saving and who God is and who he's going to be to us, who Jesus is, at the end of verse 7, he anticipates our question of how is this going to happen? How can we be sure? By this little nugget right here. The zeal of the Lord will do this. That's a great phrase. The zeal of the Lord will do this. The passionate commitment of God is what you can bank on to bring about all that we truly need. Our security, indeed our salvation, rests not on our performance, but the passionate commitment of God to his cause. Why do we celebrate what we celebrate at Christmas? Because the zeal of the Lord did it. It was the zeal that took Jesus from heaven to earth. It was the zeal of Jesus that took him from glory into poverty. It was the zeal of Jesus that took him into the suffering and the hardship of our experience. It was the zeal of Jesus that took him all the way to the cross where 2,000 years ago he died for our sin and took our penalty that we deserved and he rose again on the third day and it will be his zeal that will bring you into glory. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This means when you think about all these titles, you can never convince God to be more caring more loving, more powerful, or more committed than he already is. Which is an important truth for me because I find that oftentimes my conversations, I'm trying to commit, or I'm trying to convince people to be more committed than they really are. Like, hey, are you sure you're going to come through? Are you sure you're going to do that for me? Are you sure you're going to do this? And oftentimes we do it with God. Like, God, are you sure? I know you have your promises, but I just don't feel like you're going to do it. And God's like, the zeal of the Lord will do this. See, Christmas is not like sentimental. Christmas is about the zeal of God, the passionate commitment of our rescuer and savior. Because Christmas shows us not just how far he had to go to save us. Christmas shows us how far he was glad to go to save us. The zeal of the Lord will do this. It's not based on my performance. It's not based on how well I think about how much joy I have within my own life. God gives me a reason to rejoice in a season of suffering. And for that reason, I often think about, you know, there's the song that we're so familiar with at Christmas, O Come All Ye Faithful, which in many ways, of course, is true. But I often think you could translate it as, O Come All Ye Faithless. <laughs> o Come All Ye Sinners. O Come All Ye Who Don't Have It All Together. Oh, come all ye who like don't have it, figured it out and cannot cleanse themselves or rescue themselves. Oh, come all ye who long for salvation and you will find everything you need in Jesus Christ. And as he opens our eyes to see how far he went for us, how much he loves us, how much he cares for us, it's truly enough to bring us to our knees. Many of us walked in here today and as we approach the end of the year, we have a lot on our minds. I have my worries, I have my anxieties, you have them. 
the things you're just worried about, the things that you find yourself drifting off to, even as you're gathered for church. You're like, man, I have this need. I have this concern. I have this care. You know what I'd love for you to do right now is a mental exercise. I'd love for you in your mind's eye, if you just had a sheet or you can even write it down, write down what concerns you. Like I need blank. And then next to it, here's what I want you to write in your mind or on your iPhone or your, your pad of paper. You can write next to whatever that need is. The zeal of the Lord will do this. I'm alone and I need comfort. The zeal of the Lord will take care of this. You might say, I'm guilty and I need forgiveness. The zeal of the Lord will take care of this through the gospel. I'm confused and I need counsel. The zeal of the Lord will do this. I'm distraught and I need peace. The zeal of the Lord will do this. As our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. He's the ruler we need. He's the only one worthy of bearing on his shoulders the governing of our lives. But here's the thing. We need to receive his rule. We need to come under his rule. See, Jesus came not just to reside in every heart. Jesus came to preside over every heart. It's not just a matter of allowing him in. It's a matter of allowing him to rule over our hearts. As we sing every year, let every heart do what? Prepare him room. There was a famous book written a long time ago called My Heart, His Home. And it was a description of the Christian life and what it means to allow Christ to come in and to truly reign over your life. And in many ways, our heart is like a home. There's different rooms. And the question is, which rooms do we invite Jesus into? See, many of us, we invite Jesus into the living room. We're like, it's great. You can have some hot cocoa. It's great, Jesus. You just stay there. I'm going to go in the back room for a little bit. But you just stay there. Maybe take care of my finances or whatever. That'd be great in the living room. But don't go in the closet. Don't go in the bedroom. Don't go in the kitchen. Jesus, you can stay right here. Oh yeah, you're in. Is Jesus in your home? Yeah, of course he's in my home. He's in the living room. Have you allowed Jesus to preside over every room in the home of your heart. See, that's how we experience his peace. Friends, in what way do we need to allow Jesus to come in and to rule and reign so that we might experience his peace? Maybe for some of you, he is in the living room. And there's an area of your life, it's, it's your marriage, it's, it's your finances, it's your choices, it's your inner thought life, it's your desires. In what way have you been possibly keeping him out of that room? This is a time for us to invite him in. Invite him in. Look at who he is to you. Look at what will come about as we surrender our lives to him. It's very easy to believe the truths of this passage and to affirm that these things are true. But are they true for you? 
Is he your wonderful counselor this morning? If so, he invites you to speak to him. And he invites you to listen to him. Is he your mighty God? Then you are invited this morning to worship him and to surrender to him. Is he your everlasting father or carer? Then you are invited to rest in his endless care this morning. Is he your prince of peace? Then receive his finished work on the cross and in the resurrection for you on your behalf. Come under his rule and experience his peace. And the good news, friends, is that we can do that right now. If you've not accepted Jesus yet, and you're joining us online or you're joining us in this room right now, I invite you today in this Christmas season to say, Jesus, you're my counselor, my God, my care, my peace. I trust in what you've done for me. Surrender your life to him today. Put your faith and your trust in him and know that you are forgiven. Know that you are adopted. Know that you are accepted. Know that you are saved. And church, right now, let's press in to who he is. Let's pray right now. Father, we do pray that you would truly not just reside in our heart, but preside over our heart. I pray that even now your Holy Spirit would shine a light on the areas in which need attention. Knowing that you do not shine the light on these areas to condemn us or to shame us, but to heal us and to guide us. I pray that even now, before we go our way into our, our busy weeks, that this time right now, this moment we have right now, this time of response would truly be sacred. Where we say, Jesus, you are my prince of peace. And I'm inviting you to rule. I'm coming to you for care. I'm coming to you for counsel. I'm coming to you for power. Lord, I pray that none of us would miss out by holding back. But I pray rather that we would press in right now to the truth of who you are. Spirit of God, would you move right now? You know what we need. Would you move right now in our hearts? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, one of the beautiful things about this moment right now is we can respond to these truths. Before we go our way and like check our phones and go, you know, kind of think about all the, the things that we need to do, God invites you to meet with him. He's with us by his spirit. In a moment, there's gonna be men and women to my right and to my left. They're gonna be up here against the railing and against the wall. They're wearing the prayer lanyards. They're part of our prayer ministry team and they are here to pray with you, for you, and over you. God is your wonderful counselor. You're like, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Come and pray. I don't know what choice to make. Come and pray. I'm worried about this situation. Come and pray. I'm concerned. I'm anxious. Come and pray. He's your wonderful counselor and he wants to speak to you. So come and pray. Doesn't matter at what 
point in this time, you can get up, you can push your way past the people in the rows, just come and speak to and listen to your wonderful counselor. As these are mighty God, come and come down to the carpets and as we often see in scripture, people just showing that posture of adoration. We get on our knees and we lift our hands and saying, God, you are my God and you are powerful and I worship you. I'm not just giving you my attention, I'm showing you my adoration. And we remember all that he's done for us. And that's why I call you on this morning at Christmas time. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, come forward and take communion, take the bread remembering Christ's body broken for you. Drink the cup, remembering his blood shed for you. It's a proclamation that Jesus, your zeal has accomplished my salvation and your zeal's gonna bring me to glory. And I remember what you've done in the past by looking forward to the future, by proclaiming that here and now. And that's why we're told to take communion. We're told by the Apostle Paul that we do this as a declaration that we are waiting for him to come again. And as we worship, friends, may you experience the lift. I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants to, your heart to experience that lift of like, God, I've been trying to govern my life. I'm rolling that back onto you. And may that happen now, even as we respond and worship. God, you are God and I am not. And I'm glad to surrender to you. Let's do that now and we'll experience his peace. Let's press in.